Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian writer who was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature in 1970. Despite being a decorated commander in the Russian army, he was imprisoned near the end of World War II because he wrote in a private letter a word of criticism against Joseph Stalin. It resulted in him having to spend years in a Russian gulag. But during that time, God opened his understanding to think about the nature of evil and sin. And in his widely acclaimed book, The Gulag Archipelago, he writes this, It was granted me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load. This essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good, and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. Well, Solzhenitsyn was honestly trying to describe that which the Bible more accurately explains about the nature of sin and evil in the world. Every person is made in the image of God and therefore is capable of amazing, noble works. But every person is also infected with evil and therefore is capable of the cruelest mayhem and death. The evil that infects every person in this world is called sin. And that's the explanation for all of the injustice that we see in the world today. That's the explanation for evil that sometimes seems like it is rampant in our world today. And sin is the explanation for death in the world. You see, according to the Bible, evil, wickedness, death are not natural. They are not part of the inherent nature of the world God created. Now they exist, most certainly they exist, but they exist as intruders, as invaders into God's good creation. When God created the world, he said upon its completion, it's very good. But today, we have to confess, it is not very good. The universality of sin and death are hardly questioned today. But the reason that they exist has been the subject of speculation and conversations from philosophical societies to hair salons from time immemorial. So, the question needs to be put before us this morning. Should we consider sin and evil as just 
natural, inevitable ingredients of a material world? That is, are they merely a part of the evolutionary process that we are caught up in as human beings? The secular mindset, the mindset that does not acknowledge the existence of God, says, yes, of course that is true. Sin is merely an imperfection which we are on the way to overcoming. I mean, that's what evolutionary theory says. Well, you know what we ought to say as Christians in response. Well, how long is this going to take? (laughs) I mean, we've been at it, according to your theory, for billions of years. When is this hiccup? going to be overcome. Is anyone prepared honestly to say that man's inhumanity to man today is any less than it was among ancient barbarians? The secularist also separates sin from death and sees death as the mere natural result of all living things in a material world. And of course, our own experience confirms that yes, Living organisms do indeed die. The scripture says it's appointed unto all people once to die. And we repeatedly read in the scripture that those who die are going the way of all flesh. Yet throughout history there has been embedded in people's psyche this sense that there's something beyond death. And that's why with nearly every civilization that's ever been discovered There has been some sense of an underworld, a world to which people in this world travel through death. Well, how are Christians to think about these things? How are those of us who take God seriously and take his word seriously to respond to these swirling ideas about sin and evil and death in the world? Well, I love the way that the late James Montgomery Boyce put it. When he wrote, the Christian answer to the universality of sin and death is that death is not natural, but it is the punishment of God for sin. It says, moreover, that sin entered the world through the one act of Adam, who was the first man, and that from Adam, sin and its consequences, death, passed to his descendants. That's exactly what we find in the text that is before us this morning from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. This passage is found on page 942, the Bible that is supplied to you in the chair in front of you. I encourage you to get a copy of God's Word and open it and try to follow along and keep your mind moving as we work our way through the leading verse of this passage. We began looking at this section last week. And I noted that verses 12 through 21 is one of the most theologically important passages in all of the Bible. It's important to understand this section of Romans so that we will not miss Paul's great arguments as he moves through the whole letter. But it's important also not just for the book of Romans, it's important so that we don't misunderstand the whole Bible's message of God's one way of salvation. Last week, in our overview of these ten verses, I pointed out that Paul compares and contrasts Adam and Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he shows us and explains how all people are naturally related to Adam, and all Christians, all believers, are spiritually related to Christ. 
as E.H. Gifford has written about this passage, the master thought of the whole passage is that unity of the many in the one, which forms the point of comparison between Adam and Christ. Today, what I want us to do as we return to this text is to focus exclusively upon what we are taught here about our relationship to the first man, to Adam. I specifically want us to see that in verse 12, though we'll take note of the context, especially that immediate context of verses 12 through 14. But in order for us to see how Paul puts this portion of his argument in this exact place as he's talking about justification and moving into where he will explain further our union with Christ, let me read the whole passage. Romans chapter 5. Verses 12 through 21. Please follow along in your copy of God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man in Christ, Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin and death came into the world through the fall of Adam. That's what verses 12 through 14 say to us. Let me remind you of the structure of this passage. We went over it last week, but you'll see in verse 12 that Paul begins to make a point by way of comparison. He says, just as, and yet there's an incompletion to his thought. And that's why at the end of verse 12, many of our English Bibles have a long dash. That is, to acknowledge that he's pausing on completing that thought in order to make another thought in support of it. So it's almost like he begins a parenthesis in verses 13 and 14. But then when you get to verse 14, you see he does it again. And so it's like another parenthesis. And so the Verses 15, 16, and 17 are a parenthesis to what he says in verses 13 and 14, 12 through 14. And then he doesn't complete the thought that he starts in verse 12 until he comes to verse 18. 
So if you want to see the main point of this passage, you could just read verse 12 and then go immediately to verse 18. Now, you shouldn't skip all those verses forever because they support what Paul is talking about. But the main point is the comparison between the first man and Jesus Christ, between Adam and God's Son incarnate. What I want to do this morning is to start looking at the truths that Paul states in verses 12 through 14. Again, focusing specifically on verse 12. So that when we come back to this passage and continue to work our way through it, we'll be better equipped to to see the fullness of the point that he is making. In other words, what we want to attain in our study this morning is to see and appreciate the union that everybody has with Adam so that, as Paul's argument goes, we might come to see and appreciate the union which those who trust in Jesus Christ have with him. So what does this passage, especially verse 12, say about mankind's union with the first man? Well, sin and death came into the human race through Adam. Verse 12 says, Therefore, again, continuing the argument of justification, just as he's going to make a comparison, but he's not going to finish it until verse 18. Here's the meat of verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls verse 12 one of the most important verses in all the Bible from a theological standpoint. And there are three points that I want us to see in verse 12 this morning. They're simply stated. They come right from the words the Apostle Paul wrote. The first is this. Sin came into the world through Adam. He writes, sin came into the world through one man. That one man is Adam. It's very clear as we work our way through the rest of this passage. He is saying that sin entered in. Sin invaded. The word that is used there for came, for entered in, is a word that is used elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of demons entering into animals or entering into people. Coming in with a conquering mindset. Coming in to rule and to reign. So sin invaded the life of Adam. How did it happen? Well, we just heard it read, didn't we? In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Sin came to Adam as he ate the fruit that was forbidden to him. God created Adam upright, without any sin, bearing the image of his creator without blemish, without fault, or any failure. There was a perfect integration in Adam that you and I can only dream about. That is, his thoughts were integrated with his affections, which were integrated with his will. So he never thought anything that was erroneous. And he never believed or desired anything that was wrong. And he always did what he knew to be right and what he loved. But when sin came into the world, he began to experience disintegration. So now then, his mind is affected and he thinks things that are not right. His affections are affected 
so that he loves what he ought not to love and he doesn't love what he ought to love. And his will is affected so that he chooses things he should not choose, even things he knows are wrong. He goes after them and things that he should choose, he doesn't choose. And there's this disintegration in the human being that takes place when sin enters into the world. God had given Adam one specific prohibition. Jared read it earlier in chapter 2 of Genesis in verse 17. He said, you can have all of this. This garden I've prepared for you. Every tree is yours. You may eat of it. Except one. Except one. Genesis 2.17 says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. And Adam specifically chose to disobey God, his creator, in that one prohibition. When his wife, seduced by the devil, ate the fruit, Genesis 3.6 says, And her husband, Adam, who was with her, who was with her, also took the fruit and ate it. This is the greatest tragedy in human history. All other tragedies pale in comparison to this. Literature has a whole category of tragedies, but they are all based upon this first tragedy, and they cannot begin to compare to it. Read the great playwrights like Shakespeare and see how he turns... Macbeth into a tragic figure. And it doesn't come close to comparing with this. No event in human history that we look back upon and we mourn because of its tragic nature comes close to what happened in Genesis chapter 3. King Saul, the first king that was anointed by the prophet Samuel to rule over God's old covenant people by the end of his life, the Spirit of God departed him. He apostatized. And he dies a scornful death. Or think of Judas, a chosen apostle of the Lord Jesus, who betrays him with a kiss and ends his life in suicide. What tragedies. But brothers and sisters, those don't begin to compare to the tragedy in Eden. An upright man, an image bearer, the head of the human race, Provided with everything that he needs in an environment that is not tainted by sin. He turns his back on his creator. Rebels against him. And loses his uprightness. Begins to experience this disintegration of heart and mind and will. And that woeful condition into which Adam fell. Did not merely affect him. No, the text says, through him and this sin, sin came into the world. That is, sin invaded all of humanity. Every person you've ever known has been affected by sin. So sin came into the world through Adam. That's the first point of verse 12. Secondly, death came into the world Through Adam's sin. Sin spread to all men. And death 
through sin. Death invaded the good world that God created. Specifically, the world of people whom God continues to create in His image, though that image is defaced in us and is not what it once was, not what it once will be for those who are being recreated in Christ Jesus. Death came, just as God had promised that it would. When He gave the prohibition and attached to it this threatening promise in Genesis 2.17, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death came as a direct consequence of Adam's rebellion. Adam disobeyed and death came into his life. At the moment he ate, he experienced spiritual separation from his creator. Something that he had never known before in all of his existence. And at the moment that he ate, he began to experience the physical death of his body. The ultimate that would ultimately result in the separation of his soul from his body. And it's in these two ways that God executed his judgment against Adam on the day that Adam died. He immediately died spiritually, being separated from God, and he began to die physically. And it is in that condition That every person who is born into the world finds him or herself. That's the way people come into this world now. They are born spiritually dead. And they're born with the seeds of physical death in them. We love babies in this church. And we celebrate and praise God for giving babies to families in this church. And we talk rightly about new life and the potential life in front of them. But you know what is equal, equally true? Is that with every birth, not only is there the prospect of life continuing, but with every birth, the process of death begins. Because no one escapes death. The scripture speaks of spiritual death, it speaks of physical death, but it also speaks of a third kind of death. Eternal death. Eternal death. Spiritual death is when you, by your sin, are separated from your creator. So there's a chasm between you and the God who made you. The God whose you are, the God whose image you bear, the God who deserves to have your worship and your allegiance. Physical death happens when your soul is separated from your body. You breathe your last and there's no more physical life in you. But eternal death is what happens when someone who is spiritually dead goes into physical death. And they enter into an irreversible separation from God, body and soul, forever. That is why If you're going to be right with God, if you're going to be reconciled to God and receive eternal life, you must be born again. You must have spiritual life come to you by the power of God Himself through the ministry of His Word, the ministry of His Spirit, so that you hear what He says in Scripture concerning your need of a Savior and you turn from your sin and trust Him and you find reconciliation between yourself and your God And you go from spiritual death to spiritual life. 
when someone who is spiritually alive in that way experiences physical death, they enter into the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus, never to die again. So sin came into the world through Adam. That's the first point. Death came into the world through Adam's sin. But thirdly, the reason death spread to all men is because all men sinned. Do you see this? I want you to see it. I want you to look at these words at the end of verse 12. These are God's words. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now this has been a troublesome phrase for many Christians throughout Christian history. I mean, sin is universal. We all experience it. But here we're told the reason why sin is universal and why death is universal. The reason death is universal, Paul says, is because all people sinned. Sinned. He doesn't say death spread because all people will sin. He speaks very specifically about a point in time. A specific event is what he has in mind here in the way that he uses this word. He is saying what the rest of Scripture confirms. That the soul that sins shall surely die. Or as we will see later in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about what theologians refer to as the doctrine of original sin. God willing, we'll look more at this next week. But it is the reason that people come into the world as sinners. It goes back to what happened in our first father, Adam. Well, the fact that Paul is talking about a point in time raises the question, when did all people sin? Death spread because all sinned. When? Well, the only answer we can find in the text is at the same time that Adam sinned. The whole human race is implicated in Adam's sin. That's Paul's point. But how can this be true? You weren't there. I wasn't there. I didn't vote. Nobody asked me if Adam ought to eat the fruit. So how in the world can I be accused here in this passage of having, in a point in time, sinned in Adam? Well, there have been a variety of ways that Christian teachers have tried to come at this and explain this and understand it. And we don't want to be among those that just simply skate over it and say, oh, well, this is not what it means. It can't mean that, so we're just, we don't know what it means, but we're just going to ignore it. No, we need to look at what the Bible says, and there are two main ways that Christian teachers have recognized the Bible teaching about how this could be true. The first one's called realism, and the second one, theologically, is called federalism. Realism is the view that understands that the whole human race was embryonically present in Adam. That there is some type of natural, biological reality that we 
are connected with those who have gone before us. Now we see this being used as an argument in Hebrews chapter 7 verses 9 and 10. And there the author is making the point of how Levi, who lived long after Abraham, could have paid tithes to Melchizedek, a man that Abraham met and gave a tenth of his possessions to. And the author makes this point this way. Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. And so the same question that we're confronting in our passage in Romans 5, how can this be? Levi wasn't alive at the time of Abraham. And the author explains, because he was in the loins of Abraham when Melchizedek met him. So in some sense that we may not be able to fully figure out, there is a physical, biological union that exists between us and our ancestors. So the argument goes, what Paul's talking about here is that everyone was realistically present in Adam. Now, there's some real merit to that argument. Uh, we shouldn't just dismiss it out of hand. We should say, okay, at least we see in Hebrews 7 how that line of thinking fits. However, that line of thinking doesn't do the justice that needs to be done to the whole context of Romans 5, 12 through 21. And that's where this explanation that has been called federalism, I think, serves us much better to understand the point the Apostle Paul is making. This view of federalism recognizes that God created Adam not to be merely a private man, but rather he created him to be the head of the human race, to be the representative man of all humanity. The Latin word foidas is where we get our English word federal from. And that Latin word simply means covenant. And to say that Adam is our federal head is simply to say, that he was appointed by God to be the representative of the race when God put him in the Garden of Eden and made a covenant with him. God established rules for him and made promises to him. Having created him, God gave him responsibility and he promised punishment of death if Adam failed. And by implication, he promised life, eternal life. If he succeeded. In that sense, Adam was like an ambassador of the human race. When we send ambassadors to other nations, they represent this nation. And so when they sign their name on a treaty, it is in behalf of the whole nation. When they make a statement and a pronouncement on some subject, they are speaking in behalf of the nation. Well, Adam was given an assignment by God in behalf of the human race. He was to live uprightly. He was to resist any temptation that might come. And he was not to eat of that tree that God had prohibited. And he failed. And when he failed, he didn't just fail for himself. He failed for the whole human race. Our church's confession of faith, the second London Baptist confession that was officially published widely in 1689, referred to often as the 1689 Confession, explains this. And in fact, it's interesting, if you know anything about church history and historical theology, it explains it in a way that is actually better than our Presbyterian friends and their Westminster Confession. 
Let me just read to you a section from chapter 6 of our church's confession of faith. The confession says, By God's appointment, Adam and Eve were the root and representatives of the whole human race. Because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted. That's this relationship of uh, being in covenant, being standing in the place of. Their sin was accounted and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring. So we were federally or representatively in Adam in the garden. When he sinned, because he was our covenant head, the whole human race, we sinned. When he died, we died with him. So as Paul says, death spread to all men because all sinned. Now this point, this federal argument, this federal way of understanding Paul's meaning is buttressed. It's seen more clearly whenever you go through the context and see what Paul writes up through verse 19, because what we find in verses 15 through 19 is no less than five times the Apostle Paul speaks of universal judgment and condemnation and death on all men being attributed to the act of the one man, Adam. Let me just point them out to you this morning. Look at verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, many died through what Adam's did in rebellion. Verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. There it is, condemnation to all men because of the trespass of one man. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. We'll look at death reigning in a future study. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, one trespass resulted in condemnation for all. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What Adam did in the garden resulted in many being made sinners. Speaking about the whole human race. Now we see this before us day in and day out if we just stop and think theologically about it. Every time someone dies. We are seeing the fulfillment of Romans 5.12. Death came into the world because of the sin of one man. That's why people die today. And you might say, well, but you know, they die. They're, they're sinners themselves personally with their own choices. Well, that might be true for most, but it's certainly not true for little infants. How do you explain the death of little babies? Even those who never get to breathe their first breath? Are they experiencing the consequences of death because of their personal rebellion against God? No. They've not done anything good or bad. They've not made any volitional choices. Rather, they are a part of the human race and their father, our father, our representative, our federal head, Adam, when he sinned, plunged them and all of us into sin and death with him. Now I know what some of you are thinking. That's not fair. I don't like the way that sounds. Why am I held accountable for what somebody else did? 
Well, I can't pretend that I understand all of this sufficiently well myself to make it clear and plain to you. But what I can do is to help you see what this text actually says. Paul makes this argument and it does us no good to pretend that it's not there. And when you see it in the broader case that he is making in 12 through 21, you recognize the reason Paul is explaining all this to us about our union with Adam is to show us the precise way that God saves us in Jesus Christ. It's the parallel that he wants us to note. Just as you did not personally earn your original condemnation, Neither can you do anything personally to merit your justification before God. Your first father of the human race, Adam, fell and you fell with him. But the head of the new humanity that God sent into the world, his own son who became a man, he succeeded. And when you turn from sin and trust him, you are brought into a saving union with him. And in him, you succeed with him. Adam disobeyed God, brought sin and death on all his offspring. But Jesus Christ as the federal head of the new humanity fulfilled the law's demands. He successfully brought justification, forgiveness, and eternal life to those who trust Him. So you see, the only hope that anybody has of escaping spiritual death and eternal death upon their physical death, is to be removed from union with Adam and established in union with Christ so that Christ is your head. Christ becomes your Savior. The most influential textbook that was used in the American colonies up until the beginning of the 19th century is the New England Primer. That Primer was written to teach children how to read, to teach them the alphabet, to help them to understand how words work. But it was also written to teach Bible truths. And so it contains a series of couplets based upon the scripture in order to teach biblical truth. We're very familiar with the couplet for the letter A. It goes like this. In Adam's fall, we all sin all. A is for Adam. But it also has an interesting couplet for the letter X. It says, X is for Xerxes. Xerxes the great did die. And so must you and I. See, if even great Persian kings can't escape death, who are we to believe that somehow we don't have to face our own mortality? It is appointed once for everybody in this room to die. And on that day, when we go to stand before our Creator, we will go either in union with our natural head, Adam, or in union with the one who came into the world to save any and all who will entrust themselves to Him, our spiritual head, Jesus Christ. Friend, if you have never trusted Christ,
Christ as your Lord. Today is the day of salvation for you. God brought you here this morning to be confronted with this portion of His Word so that your eyes might be open to recognize that you just don't live unto yourself. But you live in continuity with, you live in union with that first man that God created to represent the whole human race. And that in Adam's fall, you along with everybody else sinned. And unless you are removed from that state of condemnation and sin by being joined to Jesus Christ the Lord. In your spiritual death, which you have right now, when you meet physical death, you will experience eternal death. And so on behalf of the Lord Jesus, I plead with you now to turn away from your sin, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and to receive forgiveness, receive salvation through all that He has done for people like you and me. He is a great Savior. He came and did what God required of the human race that our first father failed to accomplish. It's because of the Lord Jesus. It's because of His life and His death on the cross for sinners. His resurrection from the dead. That you and I can be assured that in Him, God is our Father. God is reconciled to us. And our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Because Jesus Christ has satisfied perfectly all of God's demands. Oh, may God help us brothers and sisters, to see what we have in Christ. To remember what we were rescued from in Adam. And to go and make known this glorious good news. This salvation in Christ that has been revealed to us in the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have not left us in our sins. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus to be the head of a new humanity. And that where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And what Adam could not accomplish, the Lord Jesus has once and for all time accomplished. I pray that you would cause each one of us in the room today to turn from sin and entrust ourselves heart and soul to Jesus Christ as our faithful Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.